shortly. Well, we made it all the way to the end of John's Gospel. How long has it been? 60 what weeks? 62 weeks. Way to hang in there, guys. Uh, Today, though, we are in the epilogue of John's Gospel. Uh, You know what an epilogue is? It's something that isn't quite necessarily part of the whole, but it brings completion to the thing that came before it. Without chapter 21, the gospel would have been in chapter 20, and if you remember from last week, it's a pretty good ending. John wraps up a lot of things there, but it's not wholly complete yet. There are things he still needs to address. If any of you are fans of the Lord of the Rings movies, I know Tom does Marvel, I'll do Lord of the Rings. Um, You get to the end of the Lord of the Rings movies, and there's like five different endings, right? They, you know, the music resolves, they fade to black, and you think the movie's done, and they start back up again with something else because they're trying to finish all these storylines. That's kind of what we've got here. Uh, it's any of you Radiohead fans out there. Uh, some of their songs are like that. You get to the end, you think it's resolved, but they just start back up again. Or Pink Floyd, different generation. No. Um, <laughs> John here, though, as a good writer, needs to give us the resolution he's been working for because he crafted this with a purpose. Uh, We've got the other gospel writers who, like Mark, is like right out of the gate getting his written down. Uh, You can almost feel like Paul lording over him, like, finish this book. So he's constantly writing immediately, immediately, immediately in there. He's really trying to get the short little book out so that they can pass it out. Uh, You know, Matthew... He's got this different approach. He's looking at it religiously. He fully encompasses the law of Moses and dealing with how Jesus dealt with the law. Uh, But it came out fairly quickly. You've got uh, Luke, who, you know, he picks up in the middle of Acts. He's been, uh, you know, joins in with Paul. And he starts going around and investigating and and interviewing people and writing down this fully orb story in Luke and Acts together. But John, we've got decades. He's pondering. He was one of the apostles that Jesus sent out. He's been thinking through what it is that Jesus said and what it meant. And so as he is writing this story down, John's got this really large theological arc he's trying to to put into these 21 chapters. And so... That's where we're at today. John is finishing up where he started. So let's read chapter 21 and see how he finishes his story. John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called twin, Nathanael from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, he called out to them, you don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. 
When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there, with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus was revealed or appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. So Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back on Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So this rumor spread to the brothers and sisters that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not tell him that he would not die, but if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. So our passage today splits up pretty well into four different sections. The first one, Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. Second, Jesus provides for his disciples. Third, Jesus restores his disciples when they fall. And fourth, Jesus economizes his disciples. We'll get there. So first, Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. When we last see the disciples back in chapter 20, how were they? They were afraid, right? They were hiding from the Jews in an upper room. They locked themselves in. They were in Jerusalem. John tells us that Jesus suddenly stands among them, seeming to inculcate that the door wasn't open. He didn't knock and someone, you know, there was no ring doorbell going off on their Apple Watch. They just, uh, suddenly Jesus is standing there. We don't know how he gets there. He's just there. What does he do? He sends them. He said, we are told in verse 21 of chapter 20, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. 
This is him commissioning them, sending them out with a job, telling them his purposes for them, and that is to go out. But in our passage today, the setting has changed, hasn't it? John doesn't narrate the timeline of when this happened, but here in chapter 21, a few of the disciples are now back in Galilee, a different part of the country. They came back home. We don't know how much time had transpired from them hiding in Jerusalem to hanging out in their old stomping grounds, but we do know that it was before Jesus had been uh, ascended into the heavenlies. So according to Acts 1, this is less than 40 days later. So that's the setting of where we are. Who's here? Well, we've got a few different people. John tells us Simon Peter is there. Thomas, the twin. Nathaniel, who John tells us now he was from Cana of Galilee, where Jesus did the miracle at the wedding. Zebedee's sons, you know, the sons of Zebedee. Jesus, or John, the author of this book. And James, his brother. And then two other disciples who John doesn't tell us their names. So we begin here the gospel's resolution. As I've already mentioned, John is a good writer, and as such, he uses specific vocabulary and specific syntax to evoke a response in his readers that he's wanting to get. One of the things he does here is using a literary device called a chiasm or a chiasm. Uh, the Greek letter chi or chi is the shape of an X. And you can think of it like in a song format, an ABBA format. What he starts he likes to finish with that to, so that everything in between can be held in your mind. And so that's what he's doing here. In fact, if you really want to blow your mind, start looking at the chiasm between the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation that John also wrote. They fit together and it's really kind of trippy. Or maybe I'm just a dork. Um, anyway, the disciples are back where they began. Remember, they're, he finds them on the Sea of Galilee, and he calls them in the other Gospels from the Sea of Galilee. And now they've gone back home. John calls it the Sea of Tiberias, but this is the Sea of Galilee. They're doing what they were doing before Jesus came and called them out, aren't they? They're fishing. Remember, these guys had grown up doing the family business, and it was their job. But these guys who were professionals at fishing... John tells us this night they didn't catch anything. They went the whole night long and caught nothing. But this wasn't just a testament to their rustiness at getting back into the fishing trade. John tells us that this was how Jesus was going to reveal himself to them. Revealed, this word. Just like any other speaker or writer, John leans towards using certain words. He really likes this one. He uses reveal in this passage alone, three times. Nine times throughout the whole gospel. Nine other times in his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and twice in the book of Revelation. So what does it mean to reveal, for Jesus to reveal himself to them, for Jesus to be revealed to them? Well, reveal can be used in different ways, but the basic meaning is, and the one that is used here, is that you've got something that is hidden, and then it's shown to be what it actually is shown to have been there all along. In this case, the disciples were out at sea, likely frustrated with their inability to catch the fish all night long. And just as the sun begins to come up, there's a man standing on the shore. They probably didn't even notice him at first. It's first light. He's 100 yards away, we're told later in the passage. But this man calls out to them. How are they biting? My translation. You can feel the gall creeping up in them some 
guy on the shore yelling out to these professionals who are frustrated because they haven't caught anything. They're not biting. You can imagine Paul adding some choice epithets to there. Not Paul, Peter. But then this man, a football field's length away, calls out to them much the same way he had back in Luke 5. Put the net on the right side of the boat. You'll find him there, likely desperate to salvage something of a night's work or maybe just to prove this know-it-all wrong. They move the nets, and John, who was on the boat, starts remembering what happened. There were so many fish that they couldn't even haul in the nets. John writes down the first thing he remembers he said that night. It is the Lord, he says. And this is what happens when the Lord reveals himself. Jesus reveals himself and people believe. They don't recognize him for who he is, but there's something different about him. In verse 12, we'll see later on, they know it's Jesus, but something's not quite the same. They're they're a little uneasy about it. They don't want to ask him. But this man, hidden from them though he was, shows himself to them by his actions and his words. And they have no choice to but believe that it's the Lord. Now many of you here today have been on this same boat. It was dark in your life. You've been toiling, trying to do the things that you should be good at, but fail after fail, you just can't seem to succeed. And you were confronted with the words of this man calling out to you. And when you first hear him, you don't know him. He's just some guy. But in your desperation or your desire to prove him wrong, you do what he tells you. And upon seeing what he has accomplished, what he's done in your life, not what you have done, you have only one response. It's the Lord. This is a truth of the gospel. No one comes to Jesus unless he reveals himself to them. Before the revelation, the truth of who Jesus was has been hidden from you. But he opens your eyes. He enlivens your dead hearts. He wakens your mind. And the one who two seconds before was just some random guy to you is now the one who you know created the world. Every atom that exists, he made them. He causes fish to get in the nets. And he causes them not to get into nets. He is the Lord, the ruler of the universe. I'm sure you have each gone through dark nights like these disciples had, wondering what in the world could be happening, wondering what have you done wrong to get into this place that you're in. Their master had died. He had resurrected, but they don't really know what to do. Peter's, they're just hanging out and Peter's like, I'm going fishing. I don't know what else to do. Maybe you've been in a place like that like these disciples had. Everything is turned upside down in your life and you're wondering what is happening to you. Know this, that this same man who is standing on the shore is setting a stage to reveal himself more clearly to you in your dark night. He's been calling out to you from across an expanse of chaotic water and he's urging you to continue to follow him. He's calling for you to trust him. That is what he was doing here, wasn't he? There wasn't something more magic about the right side of the boat. 
The goal was to teach them to remember who he was and to trust him. So are you trusting Jesus in the middle of your boat, in the middle of your sea today? If not, then let down your guard, hear him, and trust that he's working for your good. Second point, Jesus provides for his disciples, beginning in verse 7. So when John makes his statement that this is the Lord, good old Peter goes back to doing Peter kind of things. I imagine here Forrest Gump on the shrimp boat, seeing Lieutenant Dan on the dock and just jumping off, running to shore, swimming to shore. He jumps into the water. One commentator on this passage writes, characteristically, the beloved disciple, John, exhibits quick insight and Peter quick action. John sits on the boat and thinks about it and Peter just jumps on in. Peter straps on his outer garment and jumps in the water. Why did he have to strap on his outer garment? Well, he either loosened it up to get to work because he was a worker or he was not wearing clothes while he was working. Let's just get that out there. Either way, he straps on his outer garment, he jumps in the water and starts swimming ashore. The other disciples are left behind back in the boat to fend for themselves. They couldn't get the fish in because there were so many. But unlike the Luke 5 scenario, where it was very similar, John remembers that this night, because he was still on the boat, that the nets didn't rip this time. And by the time they got back to the shore, they found Jesus there with a charcoal fire with bread and fish cooking on it. Jesus tells them to bring some of the fish that they've just caught. So Peter goes and hauls in this big net full of fish. John even remembers the exact number, 153. He doesn't round off. This is the number he remembers, 153 large ones. It's quite a fish tale, isn't it? We get a glimpse then at Peter, the hard worker, big old muscles, jumps up The disciples couldn't haul the thing in. He goes by himself and gets it in on his own. Massive catch of fish. But why 153? I'm just going to bring this up because some of you may have heard some things about this number. Let's look into it. Why 153 fish? I'm not sure that you really want to know this, but it's interesting. Few different options. Number one, Jerome, the one of the Latin church fathers, said that Opian, a naturalist writer, had counted, and there were 153 types of fish in the world, and this was Jesus bringing all of them into these nets. The problem is, Opian didn't count 153 types of fish; he counted a different number than that. So that's not an option. Choice number two: Any of you practice uh, gematria? The the practice of taking a letter of the alphabet and make a corresponding number to it. So A is one, B is two, C is three. Uh, Well, you can, if you take that principle and see what adds up to 153, you can get all kinds of phrases. So some people have uh, seen in this, uh, I I didn't go and figure this out. I had commentators help me with this. They did the legwork. Uh, The Greek word for Simon and fish totals 153. It's interesting. The the Hebrew phrase, church of love, totals 153. I'm not sure why someone figured that out, but they did. The Hebrew word pisgah, the the mountain in Moab that uh, Moses had commissioned his his followers on, totals 153 in Hebrew. Cana G, I don't know why that's important, but someone figured out that equals 153. 
Or third option, you can take the triangular of the number 153. One plus two plus three plus four plus five plus, all the way up to 17 equals 153. That's interesting. Augustine thought that was really interesting. He said, no, it's not 17 that's important. It's 10 plus seven that's important. You add 10 plus seven, that's 17. You do the triangular, that's 153. You get it, right? Ten Commandments, seven, the sevenfold spirit of Jesus in Revelation. No, that's probably not it. But <laughs> ten plus four plus three, that's where it's at because you've got the Ten Commandments and you've got the Trinity and then you've got the fourfold uh, foundation in the book of Revelation of the New Jerusalem. That's probably it, right? Or not. Uh, Twelve baskets and five loaves, 17. That's probably, no, that's not it either. I would say number five is probably the best option. Now hear me out. Maybe there were 153 fish. Big ones. And John was there and he remembers it and he wrote it down. So after Peter the Rock, you smell what he's cooking, uses those big old muscles and hauls the fish up on shore, Jesus tells them to eat the breakfast that he already had made for them. He says, bring up the fish so that we can have breakfast, but then he already had fish and bread on the fire waiting for them. He took the bread, and John tells us he gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. You see the, here the tenderness of our Lord caring for his disciples' needs. He'd, they'd been out on the sea all night long, had been working hard, were hungry, they come in from the long night, and he has a meal ready for them. He feeds them with his own food. I see here a parallel with how Jesus deals with us. He has provided for our needs with his perfect life and his complete death and resurrection. We have no need to work to provide for our righteous meal, our righteousness. We don't need to work for it. He has given it for us. Yet, we are told to do work, right? Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.10 to be about doing good works. He says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Why has God created his people for good works, which God has prepared ahead of time? for us to do. God has prepared work for us to do out in the sea of life that surrounds us. He has told us to cast our nets and haul in what we catch, but don't ever forget that number one, he has provided the fish, and number two, he serves us the meal from what he's already accomplished. The good works that we accomplish are from him, for others, and for his own glory. Not to make us full in our own righteousness. Because we have already been filled to the brim because he drank our cup to the dregs. Jesus here tells us in John 14 that this was how he was revealing himself to his disciples. I'm sorry, in verse 14. He says, this was how he was revealed to them. He is doing the same for us in this room today with these same words. Don't ignore this man standing on the shore calling you, providing you with a meal of righteousness. He is good and he is fully able to fill you up.
So point number three, Jesus restores his disciples when they fall away. Some of you here today might be saying, I have followed Jesus in the past. I've eaten the meal that he has provided to me, but since then I have fallen away. I have done some really bad things that I don't even want to think about. I definitely don't want you guys to know about. I am full of shame because of what I've done. And I cannot believe that Jesus would accept me after what I've done. Well, Peter is here to say, I'm your huckleberry. The last time we see Peter dealing with Jesus back in chapter 18, where was he? What was he standing by? A charcoal fire. Now Jesus calls to Peter, this concealed, sword-toting, fast-talking brute of a man. He calls him up to the shore to stand by another charcoal fire. And he begins the process of restoring him to the relationship that they once had had. Peter said previously that he would die for Jesus. But Jesus warned him that same night that he would deny him three times. And as we saw a few weeks ago, he did. Standing there by the charcoal fire, his strength and sword counted for nothing in the high priest's courtyard. His quick mouth couldn't get him out of the problem he had gotten himself into. And when he was asked if he knew the rabbi Jesus, Peter denied him one time, two times, three times. And the rooster crowed. But was Jesus surprised by that? No, he knew it. He had called that before it happened. So do you think Jesus is surprised when you deny him? With your sinful words or actions? No. Now that doesn't excuse us from committing the sin. But don't think that you can separate yourself from Jesus because you have done it. Paul reminds us in Romans 8. He said, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Peter had denied his Lord in his very hour of suffering. So Jesus comes to remind Peter of who he is, not what Peter had done, but who he is. Peter had denied Jesus three times, and now Jesus restores Peter three times. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, what are the these? Well, it could be that Jesus is asking if he loved him more than he loved his friends that were there on the shore with him. Or it could be that Jesus was calling Peter out of the fishing business and into the people-winning business. Possible. Do you love me more than these things that are on the beach, the, the fishing wear? Or three, it could be that he's comparing his love for Jesus with the other disciples' love for Jesus. I tend towards this last interpretation because, one, we don't see Peter like, really having a strong connection with the other disciples. It's not likely that Jesus is saying, do you love them more than you love me? Number two, second option there, uh, work is never looked down on in the Bible. Work is seen to be a good thing. 
So I doubt that Jesus is saying, you shouldn't be back here fishing, but you should be out reaching the souls of men. The third option, Peter, before the events of the courtyard, back in the high priest courtyard, he swore his love for Jesus. He said it was greater than the love the other disciples had for Jesus. Jesus, you might go to death, but I'm going to go with you. But his actions that night no doubt hurt how the other disciples saw him because they all heard him say that that night. And they, John was there when Peter denied Christ. He knows. And his actions that night hurt the way the other disciples saw him. And he hurt how Peter saw himself. So Jesus gets to work restoring Peter, recommissioning him the same number of times that Peter had denied the Lord that night in the courtyard. Jesus tells Peter, what? Feed my lambs. Then he says, shepherd my sheep. Then a third time he says, feed my sheep. What Jesus calls Peter to do is the work of a pastor. That's where we get the word pastor, the word pasture, pastoral, having to do with fields and farms and agriculture. Peter is given the job of a pastor here. But notice the job description that he gives. Jesus says, as one commentator wrote, um, this ministry is described in verbs, not nouns. Not be a pastor or hold the office of pastor. He tells him to feed and to tend. The sheep here are not Christ's, or are Christ's sheep, not Peter's sheep. Not tend your flock, Peter, but tend my sheep. And by the looks of it, Peter finally began to listen. If you've read 1 Peter in chapter 5, consider Peter's words. Years later, he's remembering potentially what Jesus told him this night. And Peter writes down for us, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed, shepherd God's flock among you. Do the work of a shepherd. Not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Not lording it over those who are entrusted to you, who are entrusted to you, not who are yours. They are entrusted to you, being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, the one whose flock they actually are, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are younger be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That was Peter who had been changed, because that was not Peter before this passage, right? Peter was not humble. Peter was all about trying to get into everything and everything was about him. That's not what we see here. Peter could not feed Christ's sheep though until he could be Christ's sheep. So Jesus gently brings Peter back into the fold there on the shore next to the charcoal fire. He's telling Peter, follow me, he says. And that is what he tells you this morning. If you feel like you've fallen too far away, 
You haven't sinned any worse than Peter denying the Lord in his hour of suffering. And Jesus speaks to you also through these words. Follow me. You may feel like you've been hiking for miles down a trail, going the opposite direction from where you last saw Jesus. But to follow him, it's just one step back. Stop fleeing. Take Jesus at his word. He is good and he is able to bring you back in to the fold. Final point here, Jesus economizes his disciples. And when I say economizes, I'm not talking about the boring class that you took in high school or college, or maybe Delon really enjoyed it, I don't know. Um, the word economy here comes from the Greek oikonomia, meaning to manage one's household. So Jesus here is putting his house in order before he leaves. After Jesus restores Peter and commissions him, Peter looks around to see John, the beloved disciple, the writer of this book. Was he working? Was he really secretly jealous of Peter? Was he keeping tabs on the competition? Well, John never tells on himself here. We don't really know why he was there and what he was doing listening in. But he was close enough to report every single word of that last private interaction that Jesus had with Peter. And he hears Peter ask Jesus, what about him? Talking about John. If I'm the one who denied you, Peter's saying, and everyone here knows it, and you gave your mom to John to take care of, then you must have a really important job for him because Jesus had told Peter what's going to happen to him. He's going to die. When you were young, you went about wherever you wanted, but when you get old, you're going to go somewhere you don't want. You're going to be stretched out, he says. You're going to be tied down. Because Peter was going to die on a cross as well. But maybe he's thinking, that's not going to be the case for John. He's got, you've got a really important job for John to do, right? What does Jesus tell him? He tells him to mind his own business. If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. Oh yes, the disciples were jealous of one another, I'm sure. Peter is looking at Jesus and his best buddy John, always hanging out at the dinner table, palling around, and he's wondering, what is he going to get from the Lord? It's easy to do, isn't it? To compare yourself to others. To look at others and think, I wish I had what they had. I want the blessing that they get. They've got a nice house and nice kids, nice vehicles, money to spare. What about them, Jesus? They've got really good health. They can feel their legs. What about them, Jesus? Their kids are great. They're always so polite and washed and clean clothes. Hi, Adam. <laughs> He's waving at me back there. Yeah, he knows him. What about them, Jesus? What about everyone else? They always have something wise to say in class. They're always so encouraging to others. They must have a really great relationship with the Lord. What about them, Jesus? Notice here that Jesus doesn't deny his close relationship with John. He doesn't respond to Peter, look, bud, I've, 
just told you you're going to die at the hands of other men who will stretch out you on a cross, but John will get the same treatment. John doesn't, by the way. What does Jesus say? He says, what if I want him to remain until I come? What's it got to do with you? As for you, follow me. What if Jesus has a totally different purpose for you than the person sitting across the room for you, from you right now? What if he's doing something different in your life? What does Jesus say? What is that to you? As for you, follow me. Follow me where you are. What if he wants to provide someone here with a great job, a healthy family, and lots of influence? What is that to you? As for you, follow me, Jesus says. We all have different purposes. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 12, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. And I would add to that, they can't say, I want to be you. Brothers and sisters, Christ has purposes for each one of us in his body, of which we're not necessarily aware. We don't always get the plan ahead of time. Peter did. You're going to die. Guess what? So are you. But we don't know how. We don't know when. We don't know if we'll be healthy till the end. We don't know if we're going to be suffering all the rest of the days of our lives. We don't know. What is that to you? Follow me, Jesus says. He has sent us the way that he has sent them here. He provides us with what we need to do the work that he's given us to do. So don't let jealousy become a part of your life. Trust that the Lord of hosts knows what he's doing when placing and equipping his people. But, I realize that can come across harshly. But, don't be afraid to use what John Piper calls the wartime walkie-talkie of prayer. There's nothing wrong with calling your commanding officer and asking for resupply. Sometimes that is what he's waiting for you to do so that he can honor you in that, or you can honor him in that way too. So John closes his gospel here by first confirming that what he had written was true and then with this small little piece of prose he says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. Part of that phrase may be a little bit poetic and dramatic, but when you consider it, as John had been considering it for decades, it is very true. How did John start his gospel? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and apart from him, not anything was made that was made. All things were created through him. The Word became flesh and dwelt among the things he had made. Every quark, every fermion, every boson, every lepton, hadron, every proton, neutron, 
electron, photon, atom, molecule, bacterium, fungus, grass, plant, tree, poison ivy for some reason, snakes, fish, crustaceans, insects, birds, mammals, every bite of meat or vegetable or fruit that you will eat today, he created them all. The fibers in the clothes that you wear, the strength of the buildings that you reside in, the speed and the power of the vehicles you travel at really high rates of speed in Smyrna down the road with, the logic that you use to decipher your place in the world, the knowledge that you gorge on when you open your phone or your computer or your television or a book, all of it is from him and through him and to him. So yes, start to write down the things that Jesus has done. The world could not contain it all because you could not capture it all because you are finite and he is infinite and he is worthy to be praised for what he has done. So let's end the message today the same way that John had been pondering since that day on the shore when he counted 153 large fish. This man was Jesus. He is the world's only savior. Follow him. Lord Jesus, I pray that your word would be effective. Holy Spirit, please apply the words that were...